In 2016, Hillary Clinton took the majority of votes in Texas's 7th Congressional District. Now what could be a test case for Republican control in Texas? The story on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. John Culberson is the nine-term Republican incumbent in a district that's trending Democratic. We'll take a closer look at the dynamics of the district and what it might tell us about the future of Texas politics more broadly. Also, slippery stuff. Oil falls to new boom-time lows. And hats off to Roy Hargrove, the Waco-born trumpeter once considered jazz music's brightest promise, passes away at age 49. All those stories and more as the Texas Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, well, here we are. Eve of elections in what many consider to be the most important midterm season since ever. Yeah, you're on Texas Standard Time on this November 5th, 2018. I'm David Brown, and by Texas Standard Time, we trust you enjoyed that extra hour of sleep on Sunday, though many bodies still catching up to the shift, no doubt. It appears to be official. More people have already voted in Texas than the total number who cast ballots in 2014. And we're still expecting long lines at the polling stations on Tuesday. What's getting people out to the polls? Well, the obvious answer is that these midterms are effectively a referendum on a certain occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But let's step back a bit more as we plan to do this hour. We're often told that unless something's done about education, Texans can't hold on to their economic strength and school funding, teacher pay, retirement system, all in crisis. Speaking of economic growth, boom times in the oil patch are doing what to our quality of life? On balance, are we better off or do Texans want tougher regulation of the oil industry? And what about changing demographics? How much are growing communities demanding a place at the political table in Texas? We're going to be exploring each of those issues and a whole lot more this hour. But first, let's get a lay of the land. According to Ross Ramsey, columnist and co-founder of the Texas Tribune, there are, count them, 14 statewide offices, 36 congressional seats, 7 of 15 seats on the State Board of Education, 15 of the 31 seats in the Texas Senate, and 150 seats in the Texas House all on the line tomorrow. And that's before you get to the local races and down-ballot referenda. All season long, Ross has been compiling a 2018 midterm hot list. And over at the Texas Tribune website, he's put together the final list of the most competitive races in the Lone Star State. Ross, good to have you back on the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me, David. I suppose we should begin with your disclaimer. This is <laughs> a conversation <laughs> starter, right? Well, yeah, I am not a fortune teller. And, you know, my, my, you know, my list always has a couple of things on it that blow out and always misses a couple of things that are close. So um, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Okay, got it. So, uh, and another asterisk perhaps we should put in here since we're limited on time. Uh, maybe we should talk about the two or three hottest races. Which candidates should be most worried about uh, what's in their rearview mirror, as you put it? You know, I think the, the hottest races, you know, if you're looking just anywhere on the ballot are in Dallas County. Dallas County is a blue county now. It used to be a red county. And yet there are still a bunch of Republicans holding state legislative and congressional offices there who are in trouble this time. And I think to the extent Texas has a blue wave, Dallas County is the first place to look. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, our big interesting race, of course, is the one at the top of the ticket. Yeah, well, absolutely. Are you, I presume you are talking about uh, the uh, Senate race? I am. And, you know, the the 
voting is high this year because people like a fight. They like to go to a real contest, and the U.S. Senate race kind of unexpectedly, given Texas's recent record, is a, is a big race. It seems like there's been a little bit of a disjuncture, though, certainly in reporting on this race. Beto O'Rourke has received the lion's share of attention, I think it's safe to say. Uh, he's been celebrated uh, by uh, some national media outfits as uh, uh, the brightest opportunity for a change in Texas politics in some time. He's been compared to uh, uh, one of the Kennedys. Uh, and, and yet, uh, in many of the recent polls, uh, it, it seems to suggest that uh, Ted Cruz uh, will, uh, uh, will walk away the victor here. What do you make of all of this? You know, the, beating the Republicans in Texas is like beating the New England Patriots. They've just been in control for so long, and they're so strong, and everybody would like to see them knocked off just to see them knocked off, you know, some, in some ways. And I think that's what's attracted the national media. The thing that's interesting about this race is that Ted Cruz mounted much the same race in 2012 that Beto O'Rourke is doing now. He's running against a popular incumbent. It's kind of a grassroots campaign. It's got a lot of people talking about it. This is how Ted Cruz overtook David Dewhurst six years ago. Uh, And it's an unexpected thing. Ted Cruz was a presidential candidate just a minute ago and might be again. And here's this Democrat threatening him. What other uh, races do you believe are are particularly exciting as, uh, as we head into Election Day? You know, we have a couple of congressional races that, you know, in part because of um, the referendum on Trump that a midterm election is, in part because of the Senate race, are close. Pete Sessions in Dallas, John Culberson in Houston, and maybe John Carter, just north of Austin in Williamson County, who's being challenged by a veteran named M.J. Hager, who had a viral campaign and has caught in some Democratic wind up there. We're just waiting to see, you know, if all of the possibilities of this race actually come true or if Texas kind of reverts to its normal red self. Now, of course, uh, we're going to be talking about Culberson and that race in the 7th uh, Congressional District in just a moment. Do you see any changes at the state level with all those seats up for grabs uh, under the pink dome? Yeah, I think there are a couple of three, you know, probably two Senate seats, Connie Burton in Tarrant County. Don Huffines in Dallas County are both Republicans in the state Senate who Mm -hmm. are in unexpectedly competitive races. And there are probably five to seven seats that the Democrats will pick up in the Texas House, mostly in that Dallas area that I was talking about. A couple up in Williamson County are possible. A couple in Houston are possible. We'll see how that all shakes out. You know, if you're looking for a cheat sheet on the things to watch come Election Eve, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more interesting, comprehensive look than the one that Ross Ramsey has put together. It's on the front page right now, texastribune.org. The final Texas 2018 hot list, the most competitive races in Texas's midterm elections. Ross Ramsey, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard uh, and get some rest before tomorrow. Thanks, David. Hold your breath for another 24 hours. All right, now let's zoom in on one of those races making Ross Ramsey's hot list, the battle in Texas's 7th Congressional District, considered by many to be one of the closest, not just in Texas, but in the whole country. Nine-term Republican Congressman John Culberson faces Democratic challenger Lizzie Panil Fletcher. As Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reminds us, this district, which covers a lot of West Houston, voted narrowly for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and that's a pretty big hint as to why this race is one to watch. From the start of this cycle, it looked like an ideal test case for Democrats to win over a traditionally Republican demographic, suburban white women. 
At the end of the day, women are going to be critical in ensuring Republican victories up and down the ballot November 6th. And what's the easiest way to accomplish that? Vote straight Republican tickets. That's Belinda Culberson campaigning for her husband during a Women for Culberson event. Attendees packed the Harris County Republican Party headquarters, including Eileen Robinson. I've been involved for a long time. <laughs> She's lived in the district since George H.W. Bush represented it. Her GOP roots go deeper still. When I was six years old, I came home from school in El Campo, Texas, in Wharton County, and I told my grandfather, I like Ike, I like Ike, and he said, Eileen, we're Democrats. We like Stevenson. And I said, no, I like Ike. Robinson's raised tens of thousands of dollars for the state party's Victory 2018 campaign. That's what I did when I was taking chemotherapy for leukemia. I would just sit there and call people and try to raise money. That sort of dedication is hard to overcome. Democratic political analyst Nancy Sims originally expected the backlash against President Trump to hurt Culberson with women. But now? The Republican women who always loved and adored him have since, they've seen him, they've touched him again, they feel his presence in the district, and they've become reengaged. Culberson is running on a simple message. He got Congress to approve more than $140 billion for Harvey relief and flood control. But Harvey is far from the only issue driving voters. Take health care. Fletcher is hammering Culberson over his votes to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That's why this registered Republican showed up to campaign for Fletcher in West Harris County. Actually, my first vote was for Richard Nixon. So that's how far back I go. Michael Sterneski says he confronted Culberson about it. And I said, John, I can't support you when you want to get rid of the ACA without a replacement. You have nothing to replace it. Oh, yes, we do. I, he said, well, where is it? And he said, well, look on our website. It's about allowing health care providers in different states to compete. I said, John, that's not going to do it. People with pre-existing conditions are going to get killed. Then there's immigration and border security. Cries of build the wall and Trump's zero-tolerance policy toward undocumented immigrants are powerful vote-getters in many GOP districts. But here... Some of those things might appeal to a small minority of those affluent white voters. Renee Cross is with the University of Houston's Hobby School of Public Policy. It surely won't appeal to the very diverse constituencies that are to the northeast and to the south of the district. Latinos and African Americans now make up nearly half of CD7's population. If Fletcher can convince enough of them to vote and peel off enough suburban Republicans, she might become the district's first Democratic representative in more than 50 years. Republican Eileen Robinson's lived here most of that time and thinks it's a real possibility. I'm real concerned about it, and we can't take one thing for granted. Robinson voted early by mail. Next Tuesday, she's volunteering at the polls. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider for the Texas Standard.
Monitoring social media on this Monday, it's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Is there anything except elections to talk about out there? Hmm. Maybe not, David, judging from our friends and listeners on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard. There we've got a roll call of sorts going on, asking who all cast their ballot already during the early voting period. And David, two a one, they all have. Really? Christopher Bart says, I voted. If there's one thing you can say about our current environment, it's that we're not as complacent as we have been. And Mandy Wagoner Ray says, I love voting on Election Day. There's something about the energy in the air on that day. But I had to vote early this year due to my schedule. I was glad to see so many people at the polls, even on a Friday evening after work. And in case you haven't voted yet, in case you're one of the tens of peoples out there, here's a quick reminder about the voter guide and sample ballot we've made available at TexasDecides.org. Yeah, Enter your address and find a personalized sample ballot down to the district. I found it really helpful to have a sample ballot for all those down down ballot races like school boards Absolutely. and whatnot very Absolutely. helpful stuff to have yeah how many times have you gone into the uh, ballot box there and you don't know exactly you're like, what you're gonna yeah, it's what? like the majority of your ballot no excuses texas that's texasdecides.org that's the website where you can get your own custom personalized sample ballot i suppose you could say We'd love to hear what's making news in your neck of Texas. Tweet us right now at Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen including a healthy diet and exercise can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at SoftwareAsPromised.com. Happy Monday. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Over the years, people who compile statistics on Texas voters have noticed a few anomalies. Among them, among the least likely to hit the polls, either in early voting or on Election Day, young black adults. The question, of course, is why? Well, as Scott Morgan of KETR found out with the help of some students at Texas A&M University Commerce, one clue could involve conversations around the dinner table. Black voters really are less likely to vote in most elections. Young black adults are less likely still. And Danielle Harrell has a theory as to why that is. I feel like uh, growing up in a black household, it wasn't something that we were necessarily always encouraged to do. Harrell is one of five members of the student NAACP chapter at Texas A&M University Commerce, who I recently sat down with. Her perspective triggers a lot of nodding heads from the other four young ladies in the room, especially from chapter treasurer Zariana Love. I feel like the issue is like more so our parents. When we're growing up, whenever we have like Sunday dinners, we're not sitting at the table talking, you know, about political stuff. And so whenever we turn that, we do come that age to vote. It's like, well, mom, who do I vote for? This is an issue that chapter secretary Tamia Jones doesn't see among her white friends. So like Caucasians, as they've been raised, they already know like how their whole life is planned and we're still like learning in this sort of way. Zariana Love adds, That's why we feel left out because whenever we do become that age to vote and stuff, it's like, well, I don't know nothing because I wasn't taught nothing. Love says black teenagers often step into adulthood with little more political grounding than go vote when you're 18, which hardly lends itself to vigorous discussion, much less the forming of a political identity. But if 18 is a little late to start getting your political legs, when exactly should black parents start the conversation with their kids? Chapter member Crystal West says adolescence. You can tell them when they're seven 
and they're just gonna be like, okay. So I feel like once maybe um, right the summer of maybe before entering high school is when I can bring the conversation about. More nodding heads, and more again for the idea that it doesn't matter who their future children would vote for. None of these young women say they would tell their children what to think, but they would want them to think hard, and that means researching all the options with an open mind. If they are on the opposite party, I'm going to ask them why, like, what are your views? Because maybe I may not see something that you may agree on, so maybe we can talk about it and see. Chapter Vice President Soraya Talley says she wouldn't want to get into her kids' heads politically, but she does hope she can guide them to make informed choices. When my children get old enough to know what a political system is and feel like they they have the right mind to feel like they're ready to decide, hopefully they're comfortable with me enough to, like, come up to me and be like, um, so, like, what do you know, you know, what do you think? You know, what do you think I should do? All of this is academic, of course, if no one still shows up at the polls. And that's an idea that gets under Zariana Love's skin. Everybody registers to vote, but not everybody goes to vote. And that's where the issue lies. And so I think if we not just get our foot in the door, but step all the way in the door, then everything will kind of balance out. And this time, the quintet has something more than just nodding heads to say about it. No vote is the wrong vote. In Commerce, I'm Scott Morgan. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. At the beginning of last month here on the Standard, we were talking about oil prices at nearly four-year highs. Well, that didn't last long. When it comes to oil prices, October goes down on the record books as the worst month in nearly two years. If by worst, of course, you're looking at it from the standpoint of producers. Meanwhile, at the pumps, gasoline prices have fallen to the lowest levels since April. So what happened and what happens next with new sanctions hitting Iran as we speak? Let's check in with energy insider Matt Smith. He's director of commodity research at Clipper Data. Matt, welcome back. Thank you, David. So oil has sold off big time in October. What is going on? Yeah, we, we've had a big time sell off. It's really been a combination of factors. Really, crude has been swept up in the broader market sell off that we've seen in terms of equity markets, which have been spurred on because of these trade war fears. And so we started October, as you mentioned, at multi-year highs for crude. And then we had demand growth concerns creeping in mm. and then this broader market sell off. And so pr- prices have headed lower. But then another factor that has played into things has been related to Iran. And so there was this expectation when sanctions were announced a couple of months ago that we would see their exports dropping off. Sure. And that really hasn't happened Uh, And so because of that, we've seen more oil coming to market than expected. So the combination of these factors has pulled crude down about 15 percent from those highs. I want to I want to ask you about this issue of the possibility of a trade war, the tariffs and, of course, the sell off, the broader sell off on Wall Street. What you seem to be suggesting here is that there is an investor mentality going on and it may not be driven by fundamentals so much in the marketplace. Or what are you suggesting here? Well, it is driven by fundamentals for the oil market in terms of that that higher supply than expected. That's that's really weighed on prices. But in terms of 
the the broader picture, it's just been these economic concerns. You know, we've gone from the belly of the the Great Recession back in early 2009, mm-hmm. and we we haven't had a recession since then. So really, we're kind of due one, <laughs> and so. This concern that this could be it emerging now, mm-hmm. triggered by these trade war concerns, mm-hmm. uh, is really weighing on all asset classes, and we're seeing a flight from risk. Uh, what does this mean as we pull into November? I mean, we've we've seen some earnings uh, reports. We've heard about consolidation in the shale industry. A lot of the smaller players now getting out of the game and trying to trying to sell off to the bigger ones. Uh, what 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 are we looking at for November? Well, in in terms of the oil market, as of today, we're seeing sanctions placed on Iran, and so they, we are seeing a, a halting of flows to certain countries, and so that should help buoy oil prices mm-hmm. somewhat as they that supply is taken off the market. Right. That said, the Secretary of State this morning, Mike Pompeo, announced that some uh, countries, eight of them, have got temporary waivers. And some people are, are viewing that as a, a bearish factor, that it means that uh, the U.S. is taking a softer stance on Iran. I would argue that it's, that it's probably uh, not the case uh, and that these waivers are going to be temporary. It's a way of the U.S. having more control over the situation, more control over that supply. Uh, and so really, we should, we should expect the Iran situation to be a, a bullish influence, if anything. Uh, but in terms of the, the broader picture, we could see prices moving lower just because we see this continuation of these trade war concerns going on and, and economic fears weighing on equity markets again and deteriorating economic sentiment, basically. Well, we're almost out of time. But as you know, as oil prices go, so goes Texas. I mean, that's the conventional wisdom. What does all this mean for uh, for the Lone Star State as you see it? In terms of producers, we're at such a price on WTI that you're not going to be seeing uh, them having to shut in production because of, uh, of loss making by any means. There's always the silver lining as well when oil prices drop that there's going to be a commensurate drop in the gasoline price. And so we've seen uh, retail prices in Texas drop below $2.50, uh, about dropping about 15, 20 cents in the last month. We're likely to see another drop of about the same amount as that retail price catches up with the recent fall in oil prices. Matt Smith, Director of Commodity Research at Clipper Data. We'll talk to you again in about two weeks, right, Matt? Sounds good. Thanks, David. Thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. The number of Texans who voted early in the 2018 midterms surpassed turnout from the 2014 midterms and 2012 presidential election in the state's 30 largest counties. 78 percent of registered voters live in those counties. Almost 5 million have already voted. This year, Texas reached a new voter registration record of more than 15.6 million people. Election Day is tomorrow, November 6th. 
The organizers of a binational 10K between Texas and Mexico say they're still optimistic the race will happen despite being postponed. It was supposed to be held Saturday. U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which helps support the run Internacional, asked that it be rescheduled. That's because the agency is preparing for the arrival of a caravan of Central American migrants seeking refuge in the United States. Mario Porras is the director of binational affairs at the El Paso Community Foundation, and he's also the race coordinator. He says he's heard from past participants that this is one of the best races they've done. Because of the concept of what it is, you know, it's 10 kilometers, but it's half in El Paso, half in Juarez with the finish line on top of one of the bridges on the international boundary line. And it's pretty awesome seeing everybody, you know, from both countries running together for the same purpose and at the same time being able to showcase how close we are as a region of Paso and Ciudad Juarez. The race is in its fourth year. Porra says while it's postponed, they're still accepting registrations. A Texas congressional candidate is responding to a Saturday Night Live comedian who mocked his appearance on the NBC show this weekend. Dan Crenshaw, a Navy SEAL who did five tours of duty, lost his right eye when he was hit by an IED blast in Afghanistan in 2012. SNL cast member Pete Davidson joked about Crenshaw while giving his first impressions of some midterm election candidates. Davidson said Crenshaw looked like a hitman. I'm sorry, I know he lost his eye in, in war or whatever. <laughs> Crenshaw initially responded in a tweet Sunday saying he tries hard not to offend and tries harder not to be offended. But he added, quote, I hope SNL recognizes that vets don't deserve to see their wounds as punchlines for bad jokes. And in an interview earlier today on CNN, Crenshaw says he doesn't want a hollow apology. Instead, he said Davidson and SNL producers should pool together a million dollars to donate to charities that help veterans. Maybe the Navy SEAL Foundation, maybe Wounded Warriors. Uh, maybe Folds of Honor. I was just at their benefit last night. It's a lot of great, there's a lot of great uh, organizations out there. There's a lot of veterans that really need help. And uh, frankly, you know, this kind of thing is offensive to them. They feel laughed at. Crenshaw is a Republican who's running against Democrat Todd Litton to replace retiring U.S. Representative Ted Poe, a Houston Republican. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. On this last day before Texas decides, chances are you've already got an earful about the Senate race, the governor's race, some of the more competitive battles for U.S. Congress but maybe not so much the contest for railroad commissioner. Current commission chairman Christy Craddock, a Republican, is running for a second term against Democrat Roman McCallan and libertarian Mike Wright. Now, if you're one of those thinking it's been a while since you've ridden the rails, you may be a little off track. Indeed, this is a race that could directly affect your life no matter where you live in the Lone Star State. We begin with Betsy Blaney of KTTZ, who's in the small West Texas town of Post. The Texas Railroad Commission is the state's oldest regulatory agency and one of its most powerful. What does it regulate? Post-resident Eric Eller makes an obvious guess. Robots? <laughs> Trains roll through post each day near the store where he works. But that's not the right answer, at least not anymore. Today, the three-member commission regulates all things oil and gas and indirectly controls a huge swath of the state's economy. It's also charged with regulating mining and pipelines and citing companies for violating the rules, and so on. This surprises Eller. That's wild. So it's just kind of grandfathered in. You definitely wouldn't look up the Railroad Commission to call on a gas problem or an oil issue. Nobody would ever think to look that up. The commission's also been dealing with an uptick in earthquakes linked to fossil fuel production. 
A seismologist joined the staff, and the commission recently established rules aimed at reducing quakes. The RRC now has the power to shut down activity it thinks could potentially cause earthquakes. All around post, pump jacks dot the landscape, so many people here do know what the RRC does. Like Jenny Lopez, the office manager of a local museum. I know we have some people that come through here probably on a daily basis. The OS Museum is the legacy of Giles McCrary, a successful rancher and philanthropist. His mineral rights brought him wealth through oil and gas royalties. The eclectic collection is filled with treasures from his trips around the globe. Lopez says she's fine with the Railroad Commission's name just the way it is. If it ain't broke, why fix it? The name should not deter from what its obligations are. And if it is to clean up the messes that we make, so be it. Most Texans say they'd support changing the commission's name, but lawmakers in Austin shot down recent proposals to do that. And Austin's where we head next. As KUT's Mose Bouchel reports, the Railroad Commission's responsibilities don't end where the oil fields do. Thanks, Betsy. I'm going to talk about another duty of the Railroad Commission. It's something that might impact you every time you go to your mailbox and open your gas bill. Now, in Texas, electric rates are determined by an agency called the Public Utility Commission. Not so gas rates. Texas is pretty unique in that gas rates are the domain of the Railroad Commission. Voters need to understand that every single residential consumer in this state, they're impacted by what the Railroad Commission does. This is Jeffrey Gay. He's a lawyer who represents cities and consumers who want to keep their gas and electric rates down. Gay says the Railroad Commission lets the gas rates get too high. I would say that Texas is not very favorable for consumer interest. He thinks this is because railroad commissioners can take campaign contributions from the very companies they regulate. Now, before the last legislative session, the idea came up to move gas rate responsibilities over to that other agency. But the Railroad Commission opposed that. Here's current commission chair Christy Craddock talking to lawmakers back in 2016. We firmly believe that contested hearings and gas utility regulation are core functions of the commission. One reason, she said, is because regulating gas rates is tied up with regulating gas pipeline safety, which, as Betsy mentioned, is another duty of the commission. But recently, the commission's come under fire for how it's doing that job, too. Occasionally people say, oh yeah, you live on that street that blew up. This is North Austin resident Jack Graves. About six years ago, he was setting out to walk his dog when a broken gas line caused the house next door to explode. I heard a a call of the air just being taken away, and his roof uh, exploded off into the street. One neighbor was killed, another was injured. It was one of more than two dozen homes the Dallas Morning News reports have blown up since 2006. These explosions have prompted criticism that the Railroad Commission isn't aggressive enough in penalizing companies for safety violations. Now, all that's to say, don't let the name confuse you. Like any other statewide office on the ballot this election, careful consideration of the candidates for a seat on Railroad Commission is worth your time. In Austin, I'm Mose Bouchelle, along with Betsy Blaney in Post, Texas. You know, we've heard a lot of conventional wisdom in this election cycle, and I'm just thinking here. How about you contrarians? You want to go out on a limb and make a prediction that nobody's making right now? Maybe, a, you know, a big surprise come election night? Tweet us, won't you? At Texas Standard. 
Join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar, our social media editor, back here in about 15 minutes or so, so stick around. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Mike Slattery, who empowers students to save the world's remaining rhinos. More at leadon.tcu.edu. TCU, lead on. Howdy, it's Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. He was considered one of the most gifted musicians of his generation, whose trumpet infused jazz music with a burst of energy so big it crossed the usual musical classifications. That's why the whole musical world, it seems, is mourning the passing of Waco native Roy Hargrove over the weekend at age 49. He'd long battled kidney disease and died of cardiac arrest. KERA's Bill Zebel talked to some friends who'd known Hargrove since his years at Dallas's Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts. Bart Morantz loves telling Roy Hargrove stories. For decades, he was the Jazz Studies Director at Dallas's Booker T. Washington Arts Magnet High School. He retired three years ago, but still remembers recruiting Hargrove right out of Holmes Middle School in Oak Cliff. And I heard this trumpet player from down the hall, and I found myself running to see who this was. And when I looked in, there was this thin, small, little trumpet player with a huge smile on his face. No, no bigger than, you know, five feet. He was just a small little guy named Roy. Hargrove began at Booker T in 1984. He helped the still young arts high school develop its stellar reputation. When jazz giant Wynton Marcellus was playing at a club in Fort Worth a few years later, he visited Booker T to play with the jazz band. I pointed to Roy for the first solo. Winton had started his solo. And he said, okay, show me. And at that point, his mouth opened up, looking at Roy, going, and I read his lips, my God. Anyika McMillan Herod, who co-founded Soul Rep Theater here in Dallas, remembers those teenage years at the Art High School. She graduated in 1989, a year after Hargrove. He was cool. He was truly an artist. You know, a lot of, I guess in high school, a lot of us really still feel young. <laughs> He seemed to be the old man on campus, you know, the one who's walking in his gifts, walking in his strength, walking in his power. Roy Anthony Hargrove was born in Waco, October 16, 1969. His family moved to Dallas, where he grew up and also took up trumpet. He loved it, said longtime friend Gwena Bennett-Price. She says they met her freshman year before she ever heard him play. The last time she saw him was less than a year ago. She and her son saw Hargrove at a New York club, she says everyone in high school knew Roy was into the trumpet, its history, music theory. He studied hard, working to be a fresh musical voice. You know, that inspired all the rest of us at that time at Booker T. It was a great time to be there at the school. Great times and bad were ahead for Hargrove. After graduating from high school, he attended a few years of college, including Berkeley's famous jazz school in Boston. Soon he was playing with top names and recording and never looked back. He was a leader and a side player on dozens of recordings. He kept evolving, says Morantz. He could play with a hip-hop group and then lay down a ballad or a straight-ahead standard better than anybody. He never sold out. He walked his walk. He made his statement based on the history of the music. Hargrove won two Grammys, the first with the Latin band Pisol. 
Roy Hargrove also struggled with drugs. Four years ago, after a drug arrest, he admitted in court to using cocaine. His agent said Hargrove's death stemmed from kidney disease after years on dialysis. I'm Bill Zebel for the Texas Standard. On this date, one year ago, the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs lost 26 people in a mass shooting. This weekend, hundreds, including the governor, attended a service to remember those lost. But this year has not passed without hopeful rays of light, some of it coming in the form of artwork given to the church, as Texas Public Radio's Jack Morgan discovered. It's not art that the church sought out but art which nonetheless found its way to the church. Every decoration on the walls is from somebody. Church Secretary Wendy Choate showed me dozens of artworks sent from all around the country. After the shootings, tens of thousands of people began sending cards and letters. Soon thereafter, art. And it was not just the paintings and pictures you saw. There were quilts and prayer shawls and beads and bracelets. Choate had attended the church for eight years, but it wasn't until this April that she was hired to help. She walked me through every building and even out into the rain to look at four wooden picnic tables with scriptures engraved into them. Tables were handmade and scriptures of favorites of Brian and Carla Holcomb. Brian Holcomb was the visiting pastor that Sunday as regular pastor Frank Pomeroy was out of town. Pomeroy's daughter, Annabelle, had stayed behind and was killed, along with Holcomb and seven additional Holcomb family members, including his unborn granddaughter. Back in Choate's office, I asked her about the painting that hung right behind her. It's done with watercolor, and obviously, if you look at the picture, you can tell that there were tears. You can see the water stains on it. I couldn't stop crying. I cried the whole entire time. I made it. Dallas artist Lindsay Daly's painting started out with a dream. A long row of angels. Some have arms outstretched and some are just holding a dove and there's 26 doves all together. The doves represent souls, one each for the victims of the Sutherland Springs Baptist Church. She normally uses easels, but this painting took her down. To me, grief lands you on the floor. And I don't know whose song that is, but you know that one song that says, we're all one phone call from our knees? I guess we're all one phone call from our knees. We're gonna get there soon. Daly's own sense of grief and obligation to the victims literally took her to the floor to paint. That's where I had to paint that. There wasn't any peace throughout painting it. It just felt all... Sadness. So the painting of this, this was not some pleasure that you had? No, it was the hardest painting I've ever painted. But towards the end of finishing it, there was this huge sense of peace. It took her months to finally send it, thinking her offering insignificant to church members' suffering. Wendy Choate. We were very pleased and honored. One of our church members, Christy, went and got it framed. Every painting, every fabric art, every welded piece has its story, including some pieces in the old sanctuary where the killings had happened. Jote says it's now a memorial. It used to be wooden benches, red carpet and all. The carpet and benches are all gone and the room is stark white. Wooden folding chairs sit in the exact place where every church member died. 
A single rose and hand-painted names adorn each one. And someone had donated the chairs and another individual had written the names on each of them. Choate says that while the people of Sutherland Springs suffered immeasurable loss, the artists and homespun craftspeople who made them art have helped soften the blow. It's an immense feeling of being blessed and knowing that someone out there cares enough to take the time, saying that they grieve with us, they're praying for us. It's just nice that we're still sending love their way, right? Somehow, I hope. Still up in the air is whether or not they will demolish the old sanctuary. But a new Twin Tower church is being built next door. One of those towers will be a memorial to those who passed that fateful Sunday and will house most of the art that's been collected. For the Texas Standard, this is Jack Morgan. Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publishers of Texas travel guides, cookbooks, and humor, including Speak Texan in 30 Minutes or Less, at Barnes & Noble, The Alamo, The Bullock, Amazon, Bucky's, and greattexasline.com. Hey, it's Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Heading into Election Day tomorrow, the Houston Chronicle reports Governor Greg Abbott wants to push for limits on how much local school districts can raise each year through property taxes. We're talking money here. On the other side of the ledger, of course, are public schools long strapped for cash. As Texas decides the race for governor and other officials tomorrow, the Texas Standard Zone Jill Amon wanted to find out how the state's 1.1 million current and retired public educators might or might not be a force in the midterm outcome. Texas candidates on both sides of the aisle have been making their case for public education. Next to a parent, a teacher is the most important person in our child's education. And teachers are listening carefully, especially when it comes to reforming the state's school finance system, raising teacher pay, and addressing billion-dollar shortfalls in the teacher retirement system, health care, and pension plans. The issue is how to make that solvent. Brandon Roddinghouse is a political science professor at the University of Houston. He says when it comes to funding Texas's public schools, candidates and lawmakers agree. They want schools to have enough money to provide quality education. But what that actually looks like is far harder to agree on. The persistent fights over how much money to put into the public education system has really defined many of the campaigns that we've seen statewide in this cycle, but also in um, prior cycles as well. Get them out to vote. Get them to vote. Education first. On the last Saturday of October, the Texas State Teachers Association, or TSTA, organized dozens of teachers across the state to turn out and vote early. Specifically for candidates, the group says put public education first, endorsing mostly Democrats. At Del Valley ISD near Austin, dozens of school teachers gathered in the high school parking lot, preparing to walk to a nearby polling location. 26-year-old geography teacher George Flores is voting in his first midterm election. He says he was inspired last year by teacher strikes and rallies at state houses across the country. I didn't realize until I started teaching, like, most of the influence can be done at the state and local level. Flores says as a teacher in the Austin area, one of his biggest concerns is getting paid enough to make ends meet. Teacher pay and pay for like our hourly workers, like it's not it's not enough for them, especially living in a city like Austin, like housing mortgages, like uh, the pay isn't enough if we want to keep our 
you know, hard workers here and talented, and we got to be paid more. Find your friends. Find your neighbors. Get them out to vote. Flores says he'll be voting for Democratic candidates like Mike Collier, who's running for lieutenant governor. Collier's been campaigning in public schools. Last week, he toured a high school in Taylor, Texas, with other local and state officials. He says public education is a top priority. That's why I'm running for lieutenant governor, is because of my passion for public education. There's more to the job than just that, but that's where it starts with me. That's why I got into politics five years ago. That's why I'm working so hard. And I'm trying to turn this election cycle into not Democrat versus Republican, but pro-public education, which is who I represent, versus the others. On the campaign trail, Collier's focused on fixing school finance. In 2014, the Texas Supreme Court said the current system was broken, but not unconstitutional. The Texas legislature hasn't found a comprehensive fix and failed to pass school finance reform last session. Collier says he's hoping teachers frustrated about school finance will rally behind his campaign over what he calls current Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's failed education leadership. And during the session, he wastes everybody's time with bathrooms to distract them from the fact that he cannot, will not solve the fundamental problems we face as a state. Patrick's campaign did not return a request for an interview for this story, but the lieutenant governor's touted his efforts to pay teachers more. He released this ad in October. That's why last year I proposed to increase teachers' pay by an average of $10,000. Patrick's also highlighting his efforts to infuse the troubled teacher retirement system with hundreds of millions of dollars during the last regular and special legislative session. Of course, this isn't the only Texas race where education's a primary issue. In general, though, Brandon Roddinghouse says these aren't the issues that drive your average voter to the polls. Most people are not terribly aware of how the school finance system works. They may have a sense that it's not working well, but they don't necessarily understand all of the levers to be able to make some inferences about who is better to lead that. But he says the public school teachers and ed advocates that do focus on this have influence that extends beyond whatever happens on Tuesday. In the past, we've seen teachers be a major force for making their political views known. And if it's the case that that unity can coalesce around a few issues that could be consequential in future elections. Teacher retirement and pension shortfalls are just two of the major education policy issues that state lawmakers will be addressing this upcoming legislative session. Also likely, debates over school choice, special education funding, school safety, and standardized testing. Reporting in Austin, I'm Jill Amon for the Texas Standard. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Gee, I wonder what Texans are talking about on this hmm. Monday. Wells Dunbar, social media editor, I think you've got some answers. Yes, election madness continues, David. Here's another helpful message from a listener via social media. On Facebook, Veronica Wright notes, Don't forget, if you vote tomorrow and you work during the hours the polls are open, it's Texas law for your employer to give you two hours paid to go out and vote. That is true, albeit with a couple caveats. It yeah. obviously doesn't apply if you voted early or voted already, and only if the employee doesn't have otherwise sufficient free time while the polls are open. We did a little bit of research on this two-hour question, yeah. and it seems like that that's an advisory opinion, this two-hour window, that that's a reasonable time. But your mileage may vary, so yeah, careful. Exactly. Yeah. And we've also heard a lot about the electorate this midterms, including new voters coming to the polls. Well, we found one of these creatures in the wild, one of these individuals on Facebook. On our page, Jim Dugan shares a pic of his I Voted sticker and calls himself 
a 35-year-old first-time voter. Very interesting 35-year-old first-time voter. Do you remember when you cast your first ballot? I was pretty early. You know, I think you can see it if you go to check your registration. And, uh, yeah, I was like I assume you voted in 19. Texas, of course. Yes, right. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty, pretty young. 18 or 19, I believe. Wow. You yeah. must have been really... Uh... Excited. About you know, that. democracy, David. What can you say? <laughs> really get you going. Well, brace yourself. I have some non-election news. This mm. is crazy, I know. But online retail behemoth Amazon, right. you know, they've drug out their site selection process for a second headquarters for over a year at this yep. point. And it appeared that word might have leaked over the weekend about a winner. Crystal City, Virginia, a suburb of Washington, D.C., yeah, where right Amazon, the yeah, they enjoy increasingly entangled ties and lobbying clout with the federal government. So many people thought this was kind of a lock. But now newer reports say that Crystal City is just one of three finalists in high-level endgame talks, the other right. two finalists being apparently New York City and Dallas, Texas. Speculation has long held, yes, that D.C. was going to be a lock for the mega campus. But there's some interesting facts on the ground out of Dallas as well. Do tell. The Dallas Morning News reports that the pending sale of its old headquarters, announced just last week, has mm -hmm. folks talking, considering that it was one of several Dallas spots pitched to Amazon for its uh, potential HQ2. Yeah. So interesting stuff. And I, and I believe I saw in the news there that the, there's also a uh, clause in the sale of the contract that if it was indeed picked as the Amazon headquarters, right. and then there could be some bonuses there. Interesting Very stuff. Interesting. Lauren Lynn Osnick says, Amazon, I have some beautiful property along the east side of the Trinity River in Dallas I would love to sell you. <laughs> yeah. Virginia may be for lovers, but Texas has better weather. Uh, Hard to argue well. with that. Yeah, I think uh, Jeff Bezos actually has a property there in uh, suburban right. D.C. out there in Virginia. So I don't know. Watch this space as they say. Alas, you can't watch it till tomorrow because we're out of time for the big broadcast. But we hope you will join us then. And until then, I'm David Brown on behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew wishing you a marvelous Monday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI. Public Radio International.